You'd remain standing for our scripture, which comes today from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions, so he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will you trust you with your true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated, please. Well, good morning. It's good to have you all here today. It's good to be here with you all today. Uh, thank you for those of you who bailed me out on the Lord's Prayer there. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes, um, well anyway, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, we had a friend in Baltimore, I've never, I don't think I've ever told you all this story, and he always used the ecumenical Lord's Prayer, which if you want to look it up in the hymnal and thoroughly confuse yourself for the rest of your life, go ahead and do that. Um, Mindy and I would go on Saturday nights, they'd have a Saturday night service, and, um, and we'd worship and then have dinner with them, and I swear to you, since I started attending that service, uh, the Lord's Prayer, sometimes that other version creeps its way in, and uh, all of a sudden I think, oh no. <laughs> all right, so it's good to be here with you all. Uh, I want to begin today by simply saying thank you to all of you for last Sunday. Uh, it was a great morning of worship, followed even uh, by uh, fellowship and brunch, uh, I know there were many hands who came together to coordinate, to plan, to bring food, and who did all of the other things that made it so successful. So thank you to each of you. Um, I'm blessed that Mindy and I have been able to share in ministry together at this church, and we're even more blessed that our girls are able to do so, and thank you all um, for your cards, for your notes, for your kind words, and we always covet your prayers for us and our family, and so thank you. Um, it's hard for me to believe that we moved here uh, in July of 2014. Uh, I probably should have found a picture of how little the girls were. Uh, I'll confess that it was a hope and a dream that uh, we would be able to root ourselves in this community as we worked for God together. And um, I'm so blessed to be able to think that we have finished nine years and we're now in year 10. And as I think back about those nine years, um, think about all the baptisms and those we've welcomed into this church family, uh, those who have moved away, we've celebrated some wonderful people. Um, but I think through the last nine years, we've been able to focus on Jesus, even as things have gone up and even as things have gone down. 
And if you think about the last three years, I don't think any of us at the beginning of 2020 would have envisioned what the next three years would bring. Uh, as we talk about COVID, as we talk about the shutdown, as we talk about everyone and their different opinion on reopening, uh, even in the process that we engaged in as a church and choosing to affiliate with the Global Methodist Church, um, through it all, I just have appreciated your prayers, your encouragement, your support, and all of the ways that you've engaged and studied God's Word for yourself and the ways that you've chosen to make your faith your own. And so thank you very much for that. I believe there's a bright future for this church and this community. I don't believe God is done with us. I believe we have to stay rooted in His Word. We have to stay focused on Jesus, and we have to look to the Holy Spirit for guidance, okay? So, let's begin this morning. Today we're looking at the third parable in our sermon series, third parable of Jesus. Um, in this series, uh, we've been looking at, at time, talent, and treasure. I called it 3T. Uh, in this series, our goal is for us to see three ways that God has blessed us. Obviously, there are a multitude of other ways that God has blessed us, but these are three specific ways that Jesus took the time and parables to talk about. And so I think it's important for us to look to that and to see how important they are because Jesus himself obviously deemed them important enough that he talked about them himself. And so hopefully, what we'll be able to see as we look at these words is we're going to see Jesus himself helping us to see how God has blessed us while acknowledging that everything comes from him and then asking ourselves, what are the things that we do with our time, our talent, and our treasure as a snapshot of where our hearts really are and of where our relationship really is with Jesus Christ? You know, if you think in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus said to the disciples and to the Pharisees, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so I'm hoping what we can do is that we think about what we do and how we offer ourselves in these different areas and in other ways that we, we serve God and in other ways that we're in relationship with each other, we can evaluate where our heart is. Because Jesus invites us and wants us to have our heart with him first. And then our families, and then our church, and then everything else. And so in the first week of this sermon series, we looked at Luke's gospel and the parable of the Good Samaritan. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus says the Samaritan showed mercy, but Jesus also uh, gives us an opportunity to see and to think about how the Samaritan took time, made himself available to help someone else who was in need, to help the man who had been left for dead on the side of the road. The Samaritan made himself available and because he was available, he was then able to offer that help. And in that sermon, we asked ourselves, how do I use my time? And we looked further to see how we structure our day in response to God's grace. And we also realized that we can fill our time with so much stuff that we squeeze out any time for anything else. So if the Holy Spirit comes to us, if the Holy Spirit prompts us, if the Holy Spirit pushes us, and we're in a position where we have an opportunity to help someone else or, or to do something for God, you know, sometimes we're just so filled that uh, we filled our lives with things that aren't important that we don't even have time to recognize or our eyes aren't even um, in a position to see it. And so in that sermon, we asked, what are opportunities? How can I structure my day to where when I'm presented the opportunity, I'm able to do what God needs me to do? Last week, we looked at the parable of the talents from Matthew 25. 
Uh, we, see, or we saw how the three servants were each given talents by their master as he left for a long journey. You know, the first, servant, or the first two servants put their money to work. The last servant buried his talent until the master returned. And as we thought about that parable, we saw how God wants us to use our talents and gifts that he has blessed each of us with because every one of us have been given gifts by God. And so what we have to do with them is we can't bury them in the ground. We can't push them away and hide them. Nor can we choose not to use them because we deem our gifts unimportant when we, looked at what, when we look at what everyone else is doing and when we look at the gifts that they have been given. Friends, God gave you your gifts for a reason. He created you for a reason. He created you the way you are for a reason. And all we do is hinder God's word in our lives when we choose to place ourselves on the sidelines and not participate and not use the gifts in the way that God wants us or in the way that God has intended us to use the gifts or the talents that we have to glorify Him, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to share the love of God with others. All right, so today we're looking at the parable of the unjust steward from Luke 16. All right, I hope that as we look at this parable, the first thing that we remember is that everything comes from God. Every treasure, everything, every talent, everything. And so if we look at it that way, then we think to ourselves that every treasure that God has given us has been used or gives us an opportunity to use it for his will and to do his work. And if our view on treasures is that everything comes from God, then our life is lived in response to God's grace, God's action, and all we can do then from then on out is just respond to whatever he's already done for us. All right, so before we look at this scripture, I'm going to be honest with you. This is one that often gets skipped. How many of you have ever read a devotional book that talks about this parable? No one. Okay. Anyone, really? Oh, man. Okay. I never have. Have we, Katie? No? Okay. I don't know why I asked you. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I mean, it's one that often gets skipped, and, and I think part of that is because it's a tough one to read. At surface level, it's difficult to hear, and it doesn't get any easier as we go deeper into the words of Jesus. Because it seems like, it feels like, the dishonest steward is getting rewarded by the master for what he has chosen to do. And so I began this morning's message, and as I was thinking about this scripture, I thought, I'm going to see how often Jesus preached on this. And so I went to, I just Googled it, you know, because everyone just Googles. And on preachingtoday.com, which I thought is probably more legitimate than some of the other places you can go, in the Gospels, there are 38 parables. If you want to go count, go ahead. Uh, Jesus told 38 parables, and of the 38 parables, 16 of them have to deal with money and possessions. That's crazy. I never realized that. An additional statistic that was shown on that same preachingtoday.com is that out of every 10 verses in the Gospels, one of them deals with, with money or possessions. That's pretty significant if you think about it. And so I think we can't skip these scriptures even if this parable is a difficult one. Because if we went and started skipping these, these difficult parables, we'd be left with not a lot of Bible, wouldn't we? I mean, think about the Gospels if you pull out 16 parables. That's a lot of words of Jesus that we wouldn't have anymore. And we'd have a lot of holes and we'd get through it quick. 
And so as we talk about today in in Luke chapter 16, I want to begin with the idea, and I think we have to recognize and realize this, is that Jesus, in his teachings on money and possessions, he's consistent with the Old Testament. So if you go and read the Old Testament, if you go and read the books of Moses and what Moses instructs and, and how the people of Israel are taught to view their money and their possessions in service to God, I think we first have to begin with the idea that Jesus' teachings are consistent with that. He was a faithful Jewish man. Jesus did not intend for us to, to I don't think, you know, it wasn't his, his beginning goal for us to create a separate church. And I think we're still firmly rooted in the Old Testament teachings, right? And so when it comes to how we view our resources and what God has created, Jesus wasn't reinventing the wheel. He didn't come to, to toss aside the Old Testament expectation of tithing. He didn't come to toss aside the Old Testament expectation of, of learning to be content with what you have. He didn't tell us not to be generous in the way that the Old Testament tells us to be generous. He didn't stop acknowledging or at least giving God thanks and realizing that, that God is all-creating and all-powerful and everything else. And so I think as we begin, we have to first remember that Jesus is consistent with what the Old Testament says on this. And so he's not just creating something new. He's not pulling something out of a hat. He's not deciding to do something different. And in fact, if you think about the times that Jesus does talk about money and possessions, usually... He either A, is answering a question from the Pharisees, that they have come and they've posed him a question, like remember when they come and they give him a coin and they said, who's on this coin? And he says, it's Caesar. And they say, well, you know, and who who does this money, or what do we give to Caesar? What do we give to God? And he says, give to God what is God and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So Jesus either talks about money when he's being questioned or when he looks at the Pharisees and he says, you know, and and he's lifting them up as an example of how not to live. As he confronts their legalistic expectation, their overly legalistic interpretation of the laws of Moses when it comes to possessions. And so when Jesus talks about money, it's not to embarrass us. He doesn't do it to pressure us. He doesn't do it to guilt us. But he does do it to get us to think about those things in our lives that have the potential to become the idols that we worship because he knows that temptation himself. Because Jesus knows that temptation himself because that we know that he was fully God and we believe that he was fully man. And so in being fully man, Jesus experienced the temptations that you and I face. He didn't succumb to them, but he knows what they were. And so he knows that we face a temptation to focus on our money, to focus on our possessions, to focus on those other things that can so easily take the place of God in our lives. And so he speaks about money to change our focus, to get us to look at God first so that we view everything else through the lens of faith and through the opportunity to respond to God in his grace. And through and in, in order to be faithful. And see, as I think Jesus spoke about money, I think when he was talking about the Pharisees and, and even when he was pointing out the discrepancies and, and how they were being overly in, uh, legalistic in their interpretation and how they lived, friends, I think every time Jesus preached on money or talked about them, he did it with the intent of helping them to change. Don't you think? 
Because if he's inherently good, if he's coming for all people, if he ends up dying for all people, he even died for them. And so I have to think that as he is teaching, he's looking at them and he's saying, y'all are focused on the wrong thing. Even as he used them as an example, he wanted them to have the opportunity to change. If you look in the New Testament letters, they're also consistent with the Old Testament and also the teachings of Jesus when it comes to money and possessions. Look at the letter of Paul, Paul or letter of 1 Timothy. Paul writes to 1 Timothy. Timothy's leading the church. Um, uh, tradition says Timothy is based uh, during this letter. He's in the city of Ephesus. And so Paul's in prison. Paul's writing to Timothy to instruct him and to encourage him. And Paul knows, just like Jesus did, the temptation that we face to place our focus on things other than God. And so in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, Paul writes, For the love of money is the root of all evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So I think we need to begin with, Paul's not saying money is evil, is he? He's saying that if we love money, it's evil. I think people commonly misteach this passage and just put out the idea that, that uh, money itself is evil. They, sit, they, they skip the part that says love of all money is evil. And he also doesn't say that they don't have their use. What he does say, though, is that when we make those things our focus, the things that we love, when we place our entire focus on them, then what leads to evil is what comes out of our hearts. Right? Which is consistent, right, with the scripture that we looked at at the beginning where Matthew and, and Jesus said, you know, where your heart is, or where your, oh, good grief, where your treasure is, there's where your heart will be also. And so I think when, it's, when we read this morning, as we think about this, this parable, I want to invite you to, to think about first that Jesus tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then everything else will be given to you as well. This means that everything that he does, everything that he says, he does so with the intention and the desire that you and I would seek God first as we hear his words, as we read his words, and as we're guided by his spirit. In his book, My Utmost for His Highest, um, Oswald Chambers, if you've never read it, it's a great devotional book with daily devotions. Uh, he writes this about Matthew 6.33. Immediately we look first, or we look at these words of Jesus and we find them the most revolutionary statement human ears ever listened to. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. We argue in exactly the opposite way, even the most spiritually minded of us. But I must live, I must make so much, I must be clothed, I must be fed. The great concern of our lives is not the kingdom of God, but how we are to fit ourselves to live. Jesus reverses the order. He says this, Get rightly related to God first. Maintain that is the great care of your life and never put the concern of your care over other things. If you think about it, there's so many things that are demanded of you. Your time, they demand your energy, they demand your focus, they demand your resources. And if we're not careful... And with good intent, we can make those the things that we focus on in our life. And this is what Jesus knew. And this is why he invites us to seek his kingdom first before anything else. Before our actions, before our decisions, before every purchase, before we worship, before we serve others, whatever it is. He invites you to do so with God's kingdom on your mind. As we seek God's first. 
as we seek his kingdom first, as we focus on him first, and then we focus on everything else. See, I think people who are able to focus on God first and who are able to focus on Jesus first, that doesn't mean that we're not going to have hardship. But what it means is that our hearts will be focused where they need to be. So that even as we go through hardship, even as we go through trials, we'll be able to draw on God and we'll be in God. As we receive His grace, as we receive His mercy, and as we receive His guidance. So our parable this morning, Luke 16. A rich man has hired a manager to oversee his land and how it's used. In biblical times, uh, this is normal. Uh, the landowner would, would oversee the use. They would pay part of their, the, the money earned or the crop harvest to the, to the landowner as payment. I mean, you know, it's kind of like what we do today. Uh, the manager would have received a little bit of compensation for overseeing the farm and the other workers as a whole. And in this particular parable, Jesus says this manager is accused of wasting possession. So he calls him in and he asks the manager, what is this I hear about you? Give an account, basically, and then you're going to be fired. And so the manager says to himself, what am I going to do now? My master's taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. All right, so the manager knows he's in a bind. He knows that uh, he's not capable of doing work in the fields. He knows that he's not going to beg. And so he uses this position to his advantage by going to those that owed significant debts and having them reduce them. And here's where it gets weird. And I don't think it's as... Um, I think this is where sometimes this gets kind of sticky for us in reading it today. I think the first thing is Jesus doesn't explain why the manager does this, does he? He doesn't explain why he called the man in that owned him 800 gallons of olive oil or whatever the number was and he halved it. He doesn't call, tell us why uh, the manager called the man in who owed 1,000 bushels of wheat and had him reduce it to 800. He doesn't say the motivation for why the man used this. Was you know, he using his opportunity as a, a way to forgive debts, to provide coverage for himself if he was let go? Possibly. Perhaps those who were indebted to him would, would feel uh, indebted and they would welcome him into their home. All right, so another option that, that I came across this week that I had not really thought about is um, the manager went to forgive the amounts that had actually been added on top of what was really owed. Well, in Jewish law, you're not allowed to charge interest to other Jews. So they would uh, inflate what the value of the items owed to them was to make a profit without having to charge interest. So if someone owed you, you know, 500 bushels of wheat, you would say you owe me 600 bushels of wheat. You'd make a little money for loaning them wheat and you'd still stay clear of the law because you wouldn't charge interest. It's a great way to interpret the law, isn't it? I mean, this is what Jesus is saying, right? This is what Jesus has been, you know, constantly confronting. If you think about the Gospels, is where the Pharisees and others are going overly legalistic in some areas, but they're also bending the law in other ways to keep making money or to keep putting themselves in an advantage over other people. And so I think it's probably more of this. So either the master has added money on top of the amounts, or even more so, what if the landowner had told the master, I want you to add, if he owes me 500, I want you to tell him 600. And so if the, man, the, ma, the, la, uh, the manager goes and forgives those amount. The landowner can't complain, can he? It's not like you can go to the judge and complain to the judge that you'd been ripping someone else off and they stole from you what they, you, were, you were supposed to get. I mean, that's kind of it, right? 
I think it could have been that. But I do think what's important for us to see is that the manager was commended, and this is where the parable gets, gets just really odd and it goes into the spiritual realm. Because it doesn't translate as effective practically as it does spiritually. And so it needs prayerful thought and consideration. Okay, so in the parable, the landowner is God. God owns everything. God creates everything. The manager could be any one of us or in the disciples' instance in this parable. God entrusts us what he has made. God has breathed into us the breath of life. And he provides for us everything that we have. We can all agree on that. God has done this for us, not just for our benefit, but he's done it so that we could respond to him and offer him our worship and offer him ourselves. And he's done this for the benefit of his kingdom. And so Jesus wants us to get to thinking ourselves, just as he did the disciples, what have I done with what God has given me? Have I been wise? In the NIV translation, it's have I been shrewd? Have I put to work with what God has provided me? And these are all questions that we have to ask. And then the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewd, he had acted wise. He had been used what he had been entrusted to open the door for tomorrow. He knew the uncertainty that he would face by losing his job. He knew that he was unfit to do any of those things he did. And so he used the resources that he had to open the door for the next life. And if we look at that spiritually, that's using what we have to open the door for God. See, I think when we don't view this story eternally, and when we don't read Jesus' teaching, especially this one, uh, with an idea of how it impacts our everlasting you know, plan, I think we get caught up in the part where the manager is caught being dishonest and he gets rewarded. However, if we look at it eternally, we see how God invites us to be a part of something that's not just for today. But God invites us to be a part of something that's eternal. I think the key to understanding this parable comes in verse 10 where Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with, uh, with very little, wait, can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest. Another translation I think we've read is whoever is faithful with little will be faithful with much. Friends, like our time and like our talents, if we're faithful with the small things, then we're faithful with the large things. We build those habits. We build them into who we are. We build them into how we respond to God's grace. I don't believe Jesus is saying, if you're, you know, if, if you're faithful with your money now, God's going to bless you with more. But I do believe what Jesus is saying is that if God is not our focus, with the small things, then God will never be our focus with the big things. It's all about faithfulness. And we have to decide how faithful we are and how we structure our lives to respond to His grace, to respond to His forgiveness, and to respond to, to everything that He has done for us. Because when it comes to the kingdom, when it comes to kingdom living, what God is going to look at is how faithful we are. And by the way we respond to what he has done, 
and by the ways that we respond to, to what he continues to do for us and through us, through his son, Jesus Christ. How can I be faithful? God can show me how. Would you bow with me, please, in prayer? Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of these words of Jesus, even as they're difficult, they're also internally rewarding, as you invite us to be a part of something greater. And so, God, we pray that we'd be faithful with all that we have, that we would be grateful for all that we have. For too often we take it for granted, we overlook them, and we just go through our lives. So help us to stay focused on you as we use our time, as we use our talents, and as we use our treasure. Amen.